Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. The last two weeks I've been talking about holy provocation and uh, just the, the, the call for community for us to be stirred up. We've been in Hebrews uh, chapter 10 and... Uh, I've got to turn my computer on and let it not die here for a second. But I've been in Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to look at these passages of Scripture here in just a moment. But i gotta, I got to forewarn you, I don't have a great title for this message. If you wanted my title for this message as it's in my notes, my notes it's just 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 through 10. Uh, and so I will let you... If somebody has a great title for this message, you come up to me at the end of this service, say, this is what you should have titled your message, or go to Adam and he'll put that in on the podcast. I just simply uh, lacked the creative spark to give you some kind of title this morning. So maybe it's Holy Provocation Part 3, kind of-ish. Uh, I had, I had uh, working titles, none of them really stuck, and I realized I was spending too much time, just like I'm spending too much time in my sermon right now, talking about the fact that I do not have a title. But I'm getting there, because uh, I, I am making a point with this. We have been talking about holy provocation. We've talked about the need for one another and the stirring up of one another in the context of community. And we've been really digging into the scriptures, particularly the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, if we're going to work backwards this morning, uh, we started in Hebrews chapter 10 two weeks ago. And I'm going to read Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 here to give us a little bit of context of where we've been because these all build into one another. If you weren't here, don't worry about it. I'm going to review it. You can listen to the messages online. But uh, here in Hebrews 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is where it gets good. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We've been looking into these, these, uh, these kind of definitions of holding fast, holding firm, and particularly you'll notice how many times the one another kind of aspect is mentioned throughout these verses and that's really where we're diving into how do we stay strong till the end? How do we endure? How do we persevere? How do we finish out this Christian race for the long haul? And I believe the answer is the context of staying rooted in community. I believe it's an important key. It's a vital part to the Christian faith, to our walk. And I think there's some ways to do community well, and there's some ways to just kind of do community not so well. And that's what we're exploring here. But as we dig into this, we see these connections uh, in Hebrews chapter 3. 
And this is where we were last week, beginning in verse 12. It says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so I'm kind of reviewing these and and going back to these because I, I believe we cannot escape the mandate of Scripture that calls us to community. I think there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of Christianity that is private, that is personal. Your personal faith with Jesus, your personal relationship with the Lord. But we see so much of Scripture geared towards how we interact with one another in the context of community. And it's important for us to really dig into this and really understand what our calling is. Because I think this is something that other cultures do far better uh, in, than our kind of American individualistic, self-promoting, uh, self-sustaining kind of mentality that we have here. Uh, I know that I, I know that I've experienced missionaries sharing stories even in the Middle East and these different countries. Or uh, we had a, we had a great conversation about a young girl that was an engineer in Jordan that Adam and Sherby. Shelby, Sherby, Sherby, Sherbert uh, shared <laughs> uh, on a Friday night, which was encouraging in these things. But uh, I think it's safe to say that for the most part, our idea of community in the West is very much uh, kind of absent from a biblical mindset. It's, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't connect as easily for us, is the way that I would say it, as for a lot of other cultures that are communal in nature. Now, please don't take this. I'm not saying everybody like needs to go join a commune or something like this where we're all going to sell all of our land and like move onto a farm or something and start a cult. That's not what I'm getting at here. But I do believe community needs to exist deeper than what is currently expressed in the majority of evangelical, cult, uh, evangelical churches. I want to know you. I want to live life with you guys. I want to hurt when you guys hurt. I want to be there when you need me there. And there's, there's a certain aspect of that that is inconvenient for a lot of people. And we're going to kind of express how to address some of those things as we dig through the scriptures over the next couple of weeks. But uh, Hebrews 3, what we talked about last week, there were five things that I believe genuine community promotes and fosters. Those five things, if you remember from last week, were awareness. There was a a sober-mindedness that existed within the context of community that was encouraged and fostered. There's consistency. It was a daily exhortation of one another. It was something that was consistent. There was urgency uh, that I believe is promoted and fostered when we gather together as God's people, especially looking at the state of the world and the culture that we're looking in, uh, that we're living in. And as we see the day of the Lord approaching, there's an urgency about our mission. I believe it promotes authenticity um, in being vulnerable with one another, being real with one another. Genuine community does not afford us the luxury of wearing masks and kind of just pretending like everything's okay. 
We, we can very much fool one another here on a Sunday morning, and I can put on a mask and a smile and say, hey, everything's good, things are awesome, but when I'm actually invested in somebody's life and they're invested in my life, uh, you can't fake it very well. Does that make sense? It promotes authenticity. And then lastly, it's kind of the key and the reason why all of this teaching came about is that it ensures longevity. When we're committed to being there for one another, it, we see something sustainable take place. And we don't have this walk with God that's just like a roller coaster where we're really good one week and then we're down in the dumps the next week and then we're really good. And there's something about longevity, consistency, these things that all work together that I believe that community fosters in kind of seeing us through and finishing this race uh, and, and doing it well. And so these are all attributes. These are all uh, characteristics that I desire for my life. And it's my prayer for this church that we would uh, walk in all of these things. And I, I say this because I, I think too many ministries, and I think you guys might uh, be able to join with me on this sentiment, that they're built around the gifting of just one person. Uh, we kind of see these mega churches pop up. We, we see a lot of uh, kind of... Uh, churches, not even just mega churches, but a lot of congregations where uh, the, the church is just a reflection of the pastor. And we see uh, one person that might be particularly gifted and they can build a following in these things, but everything is reliant upon this particular person and their giftings and their callings. And now we have podcasts of churches blowing up and scandals and documentaries when things inevitably fall apart because one man and one person was never designed to sustain the entire workings of a congregation. That was never God's intention. It's not the outline that we see biblically uh, in the scriptures. And we don't, see, uh, we don't see God placing the entire responsibility of a congregation upon a particular person. Um, and uh, we, we get into messy situations. We get into an unhealthy picture of what it means to be the body of Christ. And so I wrote this down, that the entire church, the whole body of Christ, has something necessary to offer. We're going to explore this a little deeper next week, and I'm actually not going to uh, preach the last point of my sermon uh, just because I felt like it was too much to get into and too important to just have it be like a, a cliffhanger. But this will kind of tie into that. And so it's a little pretaste of where we're going. But uh, I, I, I want you to know, as a pastor, I long for your involvement with what God is doing here in our church. As a minister of the gospel, I want you engaged. I want you involved. I want you here, not because it validates me in some kind of way that, you know, it's like, oh, we had 50 people on a Sunday morning, or we had 60 people, or we have 200 people, or we have 5,000 people, uh, you know, coming to our church or, or something like that. I think a lot of the times people think that that's uh, where our minds always are. I know a lot of pastors, and it's so frustrating when they ask how church is going and they ask how things are going, it's like, oh, how many people do you got coming? And it's like, oh, yeah, we got like 15. And they're like, oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think about like, man, I'm, I'm really glad we don't have like 2,000 people. I couldn't do it. I, I, they would all make fun of me. Um, and right now I can just deal with 50 people making fun of me. Um, I'm, I'm saying all that. I know that if we're to be a mature expression of the bride of Christ, 
if we're to be who the church is called to be, if we're to actually operate as Scripture instructs us, I need your engagement and your involvement. Uh, I need your ministry as an active part of a healthy congregation. It's not simply a pastor up here preaching to you. I believe that the ministry of the word, I believe that the gifting that God has given me, I, I believe in shepherds of the flock, but I do believe that the ministry, actual ministry, is uh, reserved for the church to engage in. And we see so much of this actually in correlation of uh, how we relate to one another, uh, just as we relate to a world that is lost and dying. And... Uh, Anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself and preach stuff out of, uh, out of order here. But I, I share that because um, I, had a, I had a particular person, and if you're listening to this podcast, man, I, I love this. But uh, we, we, had this, um, we had this conversation that came up where uh, people can feel like they're not doing enough or they're not engaged or they're not active enough in the church because, you know, we have deeper project on Tuesday night. We have prayer on Wednesday night. Now we have a married couple small groups. We have prayer meetings and pre-service prayer meetings, and we have this stuff to do. And I, I want you to understand, we don't do all of these things in order for you to feel like you're obligated to be engaged in every little thing that the church does. By all means, I would love it if you guys were at everything, <laughs> but I understand that's hard. That's not a necessarily a, a, I don't know if I should say realistic expectation because um, I think that the, I, I don't want to let you guys off the hook too easily. But the reality is we make opportunity for people to engage in community. That is one of the reasons why we do so many different things is we want to present you with the opportunity to be engaged and be involved beyond what we're doing in just a church service. And so if anybody took my expression of, you know, Sunday morning is not enough, I still stand behind that statement. You guys being here on Sunday morning is not the kind of, it's not the pinnacle of Christianity. That's not really what makes us a church family. This is an aspect. This is a vital part. But friends, my heart is that we would move beyond just being acquaintances and being friends at church and being friendly to one another when we see each other on a Sunday morning. But I want us to be invested in each other's lives. I'm not talking about just going to like a Bible study or a prayer meeting together, but I think that there is something uh, built into the nature of following Jesus that we're actually invested beyond just the, the place of us going to the same church. If that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, I'm hoping that these things that we do, the small groups, uh, the life group that we have, and uh, the different things that we're doing, um, I'm, my prayer is that it would be a catalyst for fellowship uh, to bridge past the place of us just kind of going to the same church and really being engaged intentionally in one another's lives. And so, uh, I think I could maybe express this if I, I pick on Tina a lot, and uh, this isn't necessarily picking on her, but we got to go to a football game on Thursday night, and we got to watch Aaron play uh, against uh, the, the team from Durango, that Miller High School, and 
you know, we had other people from the community that was there. Uh, we had Tim and Kelsey and people from different churches that showed up. And Tina shared on Friday night in our, our kind of life group setting that she was like, I was encouraged because our people were there. It felt like our family was there. And, you know, it was a football game. And uh, I love the fact that I know that there is something reserved for the gathering of the saints, a special uh, manifest presence of the Lord that exists here on Sunday morning that I'm not trying to diminish. But Jesus also was at a football game with us, you know? Uh, <laughs> I love the omnipresence of God in that sense that where we were gathered, there was a sense of connectivity, a sense of family. And I, as much as I'd like to say that uh, Jesus was with us as the Pagosa Pirates, I think he might have been with Miller a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> it was a rough game, but it was fun. And I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this because it doesn't always have to be the ultra-spiritual thing that connects us. Because uh, we're humans as well, right? I love going fishing. I love fishing with these guys. I love playing frisbee with guys. I love doing normal things. I know I'm a pastor. I like getting together and praying. I like getting together to read the Bible. But I, I, I wanted to say that like, it's okay if you want to get together and just have coffee and have fun with somebody as well. Like, there is, um, does that make sense? You guys are tracking with me. I, I'm assuming you all knew that, but um, I guess sometimes I can be a little harsh and maybe not express that 100% of the time. But 1 Peter 4, this is where we're going to be. This is kind of where we're connecting things today. Beginning in verse 7, we're going to be in verses 7 through 10, um, but we're going to hang off on verse 10 really to dig into until next week. But verses 7, 8, and 9, I'm going to read 10 just for the sake of it because it really highlights some of the things that I've already said. We're just not going to go too deep into it. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. There's that tricky language again. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift... Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Just to, to kind of highlight and paint the picture here, those very first words there, the end of all things is near. There is some urgency packed into that statement that the Apostle Peter is writing to the early church. And it is this reality that Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is coming back. And it's a core conviction of the early church uh, that we see kind of painted throughout the New Testament. Uh, I would say this, that the last days, because we've heard that we've been in the last days for a long time now. Uh, they, we've heard that we've been in the last days since uh, the foundation of the church. Um, and I would like to uh, paint a definition here of the last days, marking the entire span of history from Jesus' ascension, his first coming and his ascension, to his second coming, uh, where he is going to come back. And so just as uh, Peter would have wrote to the early first century church that where they were living in the last days, I believe that we are living in the last days today. 
Um, and if he came back today, awesome, he's coming back. Or if it's another thousand years from now, that's really not my place to speculate or, or, or necessarily know uh, when Jesus is coming back. He said that we wouldn't know those things. But what I do know is this, is that we're closer to the Lord's return than any other generation in history. This, this moment, this date, this time, 1108 on Sunday morning of the year, September 11th, 2022, it's 2022, we're closer to the... Second, the second coming of Jesus than any other people that have lived before us. And what scripture instructs us is that should mark us and move us into a place of urgency, right? It should move us into a place more serious because we know uh, that we are closer to his return. And the reality is Jesus is coming back. And a lot of people have failed to grasp that reality. A lot of Christians, I believe, don't believe that Jesus is actually coming back anymore. But I believe that the scriptures are clear and point to a real return of Jesus. Uh, you know, this was something that the Apostle Peter was struggling with, that he was getting kind of a, he's getting a, I think people were kind of picking on him back in his day uh, after he had wrote this and saying, you know what, you keep saying Jesus is coming back. You keep saying that uh, the time is near, but... We're still here. You're getting old. Uh, what's this about? Like, and this is Peter's response. And I want, you to, I want you to kind of grasp the weightiness of what Peter says here. Uh, how heavy of language that is used. How serious, how sober this is. In 1 Peter uh, 3, beginning in verse 3. It says, Most importantly, I want to remind you, that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. Oh, okay. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as an unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. The command of all of this 
the fact that Jesus is coming back, the fact that judgment is going to come upon humanity is that we should make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. We should make every effort because things are going to be destroyed, because Jesus is coming back, that we should, uh, that we should make every effort to live holy. That is the instruction that is given here. And the reality is, friends, I believe in a literal return of the Messiah. I, I take scripture very seriously when it talks about him coming back. But there, all of this, if we were going to connect this to what Peter says in chapter 4. Did I tell you First Peter chapter 3? Oh, man, it's Second Peter chapter 3. I didn't mean to give you... Uh, I didn't mean to do that. It's Second Peter chapter 3. Oh. It's been up on... The, I texted Adam the right scripture. I just didn't put it in my notes as the right scripture. It's Second Peter. Sorry if you were really confused about all that. Uh, <laughs> I do believe in the fact that Jesus is coming back that we are living in the last days, that things are, I mean, it's very clear when we look at Jesus' descriptions of what is going to happen in the end times, uh, that things are escalating, that things are real, that things are heavy, and that God is going to come back, and he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for a church that is pure, that is peaceful, that is blameless. And when I say peaceful, uh, we, we can get on all kinds of stuff about that. Uh, let's stay focused, Nate. But I, I had three things that we're going to tackle this morning, just three very quick things from this uh, passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Those are the right Scriptures. <laughs> the first thing that we see here is uh, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So my first point here, the instruction that we have is to be sober in prayer. Now, what does that mean? I, 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 I wrote down this, that I, I believe you cannot be drunk with the world and sober in prayer. I, I, I think that a lot of Christianity today or what passes for Christianity today is just a bunch of people that are still drunk in worldliness. They're still just intoxicated with everything, the pleasures and the debauchery of this age and this life. But if we're to be sober in prayer, we cannot be drunk in the world. And so what we see here, um, I, I wrote down a quote from Paul Bunyan. Um, and uh, if you guys know who Paul Bunyan is, he's the guy with the big axe, right? Uh, he's the big lumberjack. Uh, I totally wrote down in my notes today, I was like, I remember this quote from Paul Bunyan. And I was sitting there thinking, that can't be right. There is a theologian by the name of John Bunyan who is not Paul Bunyan. And so if you are like me and get confused easily, uh, I wrote down the wrong name. But I, I remembered here, it's not Paul Bunyan, it's John Bunyan. That's the dude's name. Sorry, you guys are like, wow, why am I listening to this guy? John Bunyan. <laughs> he wrote that prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. 
It's that paradoxical thing that is uh, kind of hard to, to, to grasp, uh, to really get wrapped up in. But if you want to stop sinning, pray more. If, <laughs> that's, a, that's an easy way to think about it. If you want to sin less, pray more. I've noticed that uh, there is a strong correlation with me doing the will of the Lord in my life and the more time I spend in prayer. Um, it's just a, a simple statement to make there. But I want you to think when we read this, to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of, of prayer. When we're talking about being sober in prayer, uh, I almost felt it contrasted a little bit with some of the things that Jesus talked about would be happening in the last days. In Luke chapter 21, uh, the entirety of that chapter and the preceding verses of what I'm about to read is Jesus describing what the world is going to be like before his return. He's talking about wars and rumors of wars. He's talking about the hardship that's going to be faced. And then he goes in and he starts talking about a fig tree and how you'll know the season uh, because the fig trees, when they put on leaves, you know that uh, figs are about to blossom. And so when you see these things happening, then you know that the end is coming. And he goes in in verse 34, he says this. And these are to his disciples. These are to his followers. He says this, be on guard. And so this is, uh, um, this is Luke 21, verse 34. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And so um, you guys are probably way smarter than me, but I, I knew like dissipate meant to like break up and like to, to like, for things to like uh, disappear essentially and break down. Um, I've used that language maybe once or twice in the entirety of my life. But when I was reading this passage of scripture, I was reading this, uh, that hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation. I was like, what does that even mean? So I had to go like use a Greek dictionary and see what it was really talking about here. And this word dissipation, it's talking about the squandering of wealth and resources. And it's so intricately tied in with debauchery, drunkenness, and it's almost it, other places in scripture, not other places in scripture, but other places in ancient texts, this same word that's used here, uh, is used uh, to describe a hangover. <laughs> and so I just thought it was intriguing to me, the, the, the intricacy of this word, this dissipation here, uh, talking about the throwing away of wealth, the throwing away of resources, of just kind of casually living life in this life of debauchery and talking, and it's so associated with drunkenness and the worries of life. Um, and I don't know about you, but... There have been days where my heart has been weighted down just with worry, with the worry of life, with all the things that I'm trying to think of uh, as a dad. How am I supposed to provide for my family? How am I supposed to make ends meet? How am I supposed to do this? And then I have the pastor hat on and I'm like, how am I supposed to fix the downstairs of the church and all the things that are flooding and, and these things? And, and, and the reality of it is, is I think that there is a very easy way for us to become drunk in just kind of the, the monotony of everyday life. 
And when that happens, I believe that we lose our sobriety in the place of prayer. I believe that we can get so caught up in what seems so pressing and so now, and we can get caught up in all kinds of things that seem important but really aren't. And it robs us from being sober and diligent in the place of prayer. And so uh, I, I seriously read this where it, where it talks about um, this dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, that that day will not come to you suddenly like a trap. I see this in standing in stark contrast to, uh, or I guess in a ways a compliment to what we read in First Peter chapter 4, that we are to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And I think that that is something that we should strive for, especially in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming soon, that we should take the command, we should take the call uh, to be diligent in the place of prayer seriously. But even beyond that, we see in verse 8, it says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. This is a very explicit command that even elevates this command here in verse 8 above the command of prayer that we read in verse 7. It doesn't necessarily diminish that, but it says even above that, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We talked a number of weeks ago how it's impossible to say that you love God and hate your brother, right? Uh, and so this, this instruction, this command to love one another is something that we need to take seriously. I, I love that it uses this language, fervent. It's this passionate intensity that we're called to love one another with. It's not simply a toleration of one another. I think a lot of the times we get mistaken in, in the context of church circles that we just have to put up with people uh, that we don't like because Jesus tells us that we have to. Anybody ever get like that? You know, I, I know that I do. It's like, oh man, so-and-so, I don't really like hanging out with them. I don't really like them. They just irk me. They just irritate me, but I'm going to kind of get through it because the Bible tells me I have to. But I believe we can live in a place, and I believe it happens as we're rooted in prayer, that we begin to grasp the heart of a father and we begin to feel the same way about other people as God feels about them, that community actually uh, is actually flourished here. So we're not talking about just putting up with one another. We're not talking about just tolerating one another or kind of being nice to one another. It says here, with passionate intensity, with fervency, that we're to be fervent in our love for one another. That does not happen accidentally. These words here scream intentionality to me, that we're to intentionally love and care for one another. And then it has this kind of crazy promise hinged in it there, and it talks about love covering a multitude of sins. You know, uh, I, I liked this. Wayne Gruden, he's a, he's a, he was kind of a made scholar on leading the ESV translation. But he says here, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some larger ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, 
Every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. And I love just the, the, the clarity that he brings to this passage because when we're talking about love covering a multitude of sins, we're not talking about if you're living in blatant sin and rebellion to God that we're like, oh, I love you, so we're just going to forget about it. No, the whole context of a lot of what we've been talking about is exhorting, encouraging one another, of calling out the things in our life that are hindering us. But when we're talking about trespasses against one another, when we're talking about offenses between brethren, when we're talking about the little things that people do to irk us, I believe that where there's genuine love and compassion, I believe that there's ability to see, uh, to see forgiveness uh, that works uh, because we love one another too much to let there be stupid foolishness and disagreement keeping us from being a picture of God's love to a broken world. And I say that because it comes full circle into John 13. It reminds me uh, of Jesus' words in John 13, uh, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When I first got saved, the first song that I remember listening to was this guy named Jason Upton. He's at a piano and he's listening. Uh, he's singing, they will know we are Christians by our love. And you know, uh, I didn't know that that was scripture at the time. And immediately my mind thought, it was like, that's how we love the lost. That's how we love the poor and the widow and the orphan. And we will love people into the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I, I think there's theology built behind that. But specifically in context of what Jesus is talking about here, it's not talking about how we love the lost. It's not saying that lost people are going to recognize that you're a Christian and that they should become Christians because of the way that you love them. They're going to say there's something different about these people that are disciples of Jesus because of the way that they care and they love for one another. And I believe that there should be such a marking of Christian brotherhood that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. Where it causes people to take note. But the church is really a place where we shoot the wounded, isn't it? If you've got something wrong, if you've messed up, if your life is in shambles, or if your marriage is falling apart, we, a lot of churches, we might invite you in, and you're not perfect, and you don't have things up, and we just kind of put you down and say, well, you're just, you're no good to anybody. That's not the call that we have here. The call that we have is to fervently love one another. We, we'll read, we'll, we'll kind of, in coming weeks, we'll see the, the command to care for one another, to serve one another, these things that are very intentional. And so that brings us to a place, how do we be fervent in love? How does this actually manifest in practical application? I don't know, uh, you guys have heard me say a lot, uh, I love the scripture, I love looking at spiritual things, I love being just mesmerized by some of these things that I don't even understand and really praying into them. But at the end of the day, I really need some practical tips. Like I really need something like that I can take home and it just helps me connect spiritual truths to physical reality, if that makes sense. And I love when scripture does that for me. Because how do we be intentional? We know that fervent love doesn't happen accidentally. Uh, I believe this, that our level and care of concern for one another is directly impacted by the amount of time that we spend with one another. 
I don't know about you, but I've had, I've been in uh, certain spheres where somebody has died, and I knew of them, and I got invited to a funeral and whatnot, and uh, maybe I was a loose acquaintance. Uh, I don't feel the same way about the person that passed away as someone that was closely invested in that family, right? Um, and I think that that same kind of context works, it way, works, it, works its way into the church. And hear me, I, I, we can't be best friends with everybody. I understand that. But what I do want to demolish is this idea that you can, be, uh, you can hold your individuality intact and you can kind of just, uh, uh, you, can, you can keep an individualistic mindset. That would be a better way to f- phrase this. And, continue, and, and fulfill the call of God on your life. I don't believe that you can continue going on in your kind of isolated sphere of, of yourself <laughs> and trying to add Jesus to you and not be engaged with the community of believers on a deeper level. So what's a practical way we can do this? Uh, scripture is real simple here, and you're going to be like, this is too easy. This is too, this is like too simple here. But the third thing I would say is that we're to practice hospitality. And this is coming from the scripture here. Verse eight, it says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. There's, a, there's some translations there will uh, practice hospitality without grumbling. And this word hospitality here is not just talking about being nice to one another. It's talking about opening up your homes to one another. This is literally, I, I can't make a, a, a more clear or straightforward translation of this, uh, but it says to be hospitable, practice hospitality, open up your homes to one another, and do it without complaining. Do it without grumbling. Do it without muttering is uh, how the literal translation goes there. And it's this idea that you should want to have people in your home. I think this is where a lot of home church people get it right, and they're like, yeah, we've got to advance this, we've got, we got to do this. And the reality is, is that's how the early church advanced. That was one of the things uh, that was pivotal to the growth of the early church, was they were invested in each other's lives, where they were sharing meals together, they were involved in everyday life in each other's homes. And so... Uh, I wanted to kind of conclude with this in reading Acts chapter 2, 46 and 47. It says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So they they were going from home to home. They were taking the Lord's Supper in each other's homes. They were meeting in house to house. They were eating meals together, and they were doing so with gladness, with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think that there's something beautiful and almost like too simple about that. Like really, my mentality wants to be like, nah, there's got to be more to this. Where's the secret sauce, God? Like I can't preach this on a Sunday morning. People are going to be like, well, that, duh. (laughs) The reality of it is, is I think that there is a, a genuine aspect, if we're going to grow community, we have to break down the walls of, you know, what's important to me is just for me. You know, I like to be, 
believe it or not, uh, I do enjoy sporadically uh, just being by myself. <laughs> uh, I am an extrovert, and I understand not everybody's geared that way. But I see the command of Scripture is that we're to be hospitable to one another. We're to intentionally open up our homes to one another. We're to spend time with one another if we're actually ever going to, de- if we're ever going to develop genuine care and concern for each other. That moves past the place of just a, hey, I like you, I know you, we go to the same church kind of a deal. And uh, yeah. I say this because it's wildly inconvenient, especially when our schedules are structured the way that they are. I get it, kids are in sports, you guys have jobs, you have businesses to run. Everybody's in a different age and kind of walk of life where when I, when I, as a guy with a microphone up here says, hey, find time, invite someone over to your home, share a meal, be intentional about this, it's not easy. I, I realize that. I mean, you've got to fight for this. This is why I say community doesn't happen accidentally. It happens when we're intentional about it. And so my... My charge to you guys, friends, pray about it. Talk with your spouse first. But I'd like to give homework from a Sunday morning service where you guys would be considerate of, am I being hospitable? Am I actually practicing these things? And think about getting together. Now, it wouldn't all work if we all invited each other over to our our, our houses and nobody would come because we were all at somebody else's house. Um, (laughs) But I, I am just, I, I want to give you guys permission to be friends outside of church. If that, if that makes, outside of Sunday morning. I don't think you can, the church can escape being the church. But it's something that I believe is pivotal, it's necessary, and it's needed. And um, yeah, that is, that is the main extent of where I'm going to intentionally stop this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.